If I went to work in a factory, the first thing I'd do is join a union. Our labor unions are not narrow, self-seeking groups. They have raised wages, shortened hours, and provided supplemental benefits. Through collective bargaining and grievance procedures, they have brought justice and democracy to the shop floor. Those two quotes from Franklin Delano Roosevelt and John F. Kennedy, respectively, place American unions in high regard. Yet, after decades of anti-union legislation, the rise of freelancing, and the flight of blue-collar jobs from America, those very same unions are left shells of their former selves. Now, a piece of legislation seeks to fix this problem. But this bill, the PRO Act, is not without controversy. Welcome back to Swing Vote, where today we have two very special guests from Issaquah High School. Hi, I'm Sophia. And I'm Katie. So let's get into the facts. Union membership, which peaked in the early 80s, has been nearly halved since 1983 to 10.7% in 2017, according to Bloomberg. Meanwhile, wages have remained stagnant and the top 1% have taken up an ever-increasing share of the wealth. Some, like Derek Thompson for The Atlantic, go as far as to say this drop in unionization was largely responsible for the death of the stable American middle class. But why have unions been so utterly devastated? Some might attribute it to the dearth of good-paying blue-collar manufacturing jobs that were the bread and butter of strong union culture due to the rise of cheaper labor sources outside of the U.S. This explanation, however, while important, does not tell the whole story. Anti-union legislation, most notably so-called right-to-work laws, uh, which prohibit unions and employers from agreeing to contracts that mandate only union members can be hired, became common in many states. Moreover, these right-to-work laws also prevented non-union members from paying dues, which was a common practice in many industries because unions negotiated on behalf of all workers, not just their members. Former President Ronald Reagan's inflexible line against the aircraft controller strike further emboldened companies to strike back against unions. All of this brings us to the PRO Act, a major bill that passed the House of Representatives quite recently. It would override so-called right-to-work laws on the state level. It would also ban the practice of infiltrating union meetings, as well as holding mandatory meetings to attempt to disincentivize unionization, both common tactics among employers. It would give new unions the right to seek independent arbitration in the face of an impasse in negotiation with management. It would prevent employers from using an employee's immigration status against them in the terms of their employment. And it would establish financial penalties for companies that violate workers' rights. Business groups have, predictably, screamed about the economic disruption this would cause. More interestingly, many pundits have raised concern that this legislation would be damaging for a large chunk of Americans. Freelancers. See, the PRO Act has provisions requiring protections for freelancers. In many ways, they'd basically be hired as employees. But this, some have noted, could put many freelancers out of a job. All of this is to say, the PRO Act has some controversy attached to it, and even, even beyond the usual for labor legislation. 
So though it is unlikely the Senate will be willing to pass the bill, it still represents a landmark shift in American policy. So the question is, should the PRO Act be passed? And if it is passed, will it actually help ordinary Americans or will it aid a select few while putting many others out of a job? Um, so I'll go first and I will talk about the PRO Act. So I do believe we should have the PRO Act and there are several big reasons why. First and foremost, we have to recognize that the that unions are an extremely powerful way to level the playing field between the average individual employee and the company. What we've seen increasingly in the Amer modern American economy is the idea that workers, individual workers are replaceable, cogs in the machine. And this has meant that the kind of stability of employment, the kind of uh, work at a company for 20, 30 years and then get a pension and retire on that, that kind of idea that that it seems utopian today, in large part because employees are expected to either work at maximum efficiency or be fired. And unions can provide a, a strong amount of security that not only encourage things like time off for uh, vacation, but paternity and maternity leave, sick leave. These are all things that unions very effectively bargained for before when those when those unions mentioned by FDR and JFK were still very strong. But now, increasingly, companies have so much more leverage, in large part because the government has been very much sort of an accomplice in the death of American unions. The PRO Act is a critical first step in reversing this trend of deunionization, which we shouldn't want because, simply put, the individual company is far, far more powerful than the individual worker. So I think we shouldn't look at the PRO Act as empowering unions so much as leveling the playing field so that unions are allowed to essentially negotiate on behalf of their workers for better conditions. The other thing I would like to real quick bring up is the fact that we have to recognize that if we owe, uh, that many all too often wages have remained stagnant. And this has been in large part because wage uh, increases were often negotiated by unions back when unions were strong. But with unions utterly decimated, they don't have any leverage anymore. And what that means, really, is that these wages have remained stagnant for decades, and it has led to a decrease in buying power, increasing income inequality, and just a lower standard of life, as well as an increasing likelihood that average Americans will be in debt. None of these things are good. And we have to recognize that unions are an effective tool to ensure that the average American can get their fair share. I absolutely agree. Um, the whole act seems pretty fine to me. I don't really have an objection to any of it. I mean, um, the one thing is it further institutionalized unions, which as an advocate of revolutionary unionism, I don't like to see how unions have become such bureaucratic messes, but that's an unfortunate, unfortunate, an unfortunate act that's uh, not really avoidable. I don't think any of the conservative objections really hold that much water. The only objection that as at all reasonable, I think, is the one about the new ABC test and how it affects freelancers. Even then, though, I think, frankly, the problem, if there even is one, is very much overblown compared to the many freelancers who it would help those who are incorrectly classified as independent contractors or freelancers at businesses like Lyft or Uber or other similar businesses that primarily depend on what they now classify as independent contractors. Certainly. So then I think that raises the question. So you mentioned the fact that unions will become increasingly bureaucratic. Um, and you said that this was kind of an inevitable consequence. But I might ask, so 
will unions be able to effectively, even with the PRO Act, you know, force these kinds of effective improvements in the quality of life for their members when, you know, there are other factors, right? A lot of those sort of ba you know, the baseline, the, the heart, the backbone, really, of union culture, of those strong unions, were these like high paying blue collar manufacturing jobs that aren't there anymore. And so a lot of these new industries that people are looking to unionize, they don't have a union culture, right? They don't have pre-existing unions in the same way, which weakens them. And then you also get to that point where with freelancers um, and the gig economy and such, uh, companies have always been looking for alternatives to the traditional employee. So is the PRO Act actually going to be that effective considering so many Americans aren't employees in that traditional sense? And that the heart of unions in America in the 20th century is pretty much gone from America as an effective force? Well, seeing as the PRO Act would override the right to work laws, I think that it would end up giving union members a lot of power and it would end up being effective. But would that be a positive or negative effect that unions would have if they're essentially going to be um, like forcing all these freelancers to be unemployed, that means they're having that much power to take people out of the job and also that much power over businesses. Um, Harry, you keep mentioning that it would be leveling the playing field, but I feel like the, the PRO Act could get a little bit extreme because the unions would have so much power um, to basically negotiate and force their kind of like, I mean, yes, their needs, but also maybe like a minimum wage that's slightly less reasonable or something like that onto the businesses. So I feel like they're getting a little too much power with the PRO Act. That is certainly a well-taken point. Uh, I will not deny that, uh, I think I can speak for myself and also comfortably for my friend Harry, that we are very pro-union and as such uh, are very biased in favor of unions. Um, so... I will I will sort of turn to Harry Huang to respond to your uh, to your criticism of the PRO Act, if that is okay with you, Harry. Uh, to put it very pithily, I'm not going to shed any tears if unions run roughshod over businesses. I don't see it as a problem. Wow, that's bad. It's very pithy. Um, so, yeah, I think so. I think that you bring up an interesting point, which is that it would allow unions to be empowered. Uh, but I would ask you. Uh, if we are not already in a situation which businesses do not already have an advantage. For example, uh, businesses can lobby the government. Unions don't really lobby the government in that same way. So we already exist in a situation where businesses are very powerful. Um, and so while I, I agree that a lot of the product is very extreme, I would say it's addressing an extreme imbalance and therefore has to be extreme. Think about it like, I mean, it would sort of, you're sort of saying, not wrong, you're not, not wrongly saying it's very, very pro-union. But if we're trying to go straight down the middle, nice and even, and we've already veered really far off to the right, then we do need to take a hard turn left as a corrective maneuver, uh, if that makes sense. But certainly there is a discussion. There's room for nuance about the discussion. And uh, I would also like to ask sort of the group as a whole on the issue of freelancers. Um, is that really going to be how negative are the consequences of for freelancers going to be do you think generally speaking and moreover do you think that freelancers are going to be able to find new jobs is the american job a market even if it's only a few freelancers relatively uh put out of a job 
is the American job market currently friendly enough that that is, you know, an acceptable consequence for a policy? Um, I will answer the first part of, um, the first part of that, like, whole statement. Um, I definitely agree with both Harry and Harry. Like, I think the PRO Act is very pro-union, but the point that it's um, to one side very extreme with businesses right now and that businesses can lobby the government and they have basically like more selfish intents, I guess. Um, and so having the unions have more power, I guess it wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing because they would have um, like workers rights, um, workers rights at heart. And, you know, they would probably have more power to do things that benefit society and like the people in society rather than just benefiting like a wealthy someone at the top of the business. That point is well taken. Um, then I think the other question is, um, so as you said, so we, you know, empowering unions certainly has one thing, but, and I, I don't want to step on Harry Huang's toes too much because he's a very, very pro-union, but unions are inherently a lot more democratic because they are, um, you know, an assembly of their members. Whereas business lobbies are often just executives, executives who, you know, as you, as you know, are not elected. Um, but uh, what do you, what do you think, Harry Huang, on that one about like what the long-term benefits of empowering unions could be sort of in a broader societal sense? Well, I mean, of course, I'm, I'd much rather have unions lobbying the government than private interests lobbying government. I mean, I'd rather have no lobbying, but Ah, well, but I think an important step is it promotes a culture of workplace democracy, which is something I think I find very curious. Americans don't particularly care about. We hold our democratic values very near and dear. We like to harp on a lot about how we're the best country in the world because of our democratic form of governance. But oftentimes we aren't so hot on democracy when it comes to having workplace democracy, democracy in the, in the place where most of us work eight hours a day. Unions in their current format are more or less democratic. They're a lot more democratic than how most businesses are run, at least, even if a, a good portion of unions have deeper issues and shouldn't be restructuring. But I would hope that I would promote a move toward more workplace democracy and, a, well, uh, yeah, unions are a form of workplace democracy, uh, perhaps a sort of very bureaucratic, not particularly effective from workplace democracy in the ways unions are currently constituted, but they sure are a lot more democratic than how most businesses without unions are run. At the very least, it gives the worker a sense that they at least have some sort of say in how the business is run, that they don't just come into work and uh, just do their job as they're told and then don't care about anything other than their money. At the very least, it promotes a sense among workers that they have a right that they deserve to be able to have a say in how the business is run uh, and that they deserve to have an equal share of their labor. I agree. Um, I think that's a really good point because of what you said about democracy and how Americans pride themselves on democracy. And then if people aren't in favor of the PRO Act, that's like sort of in a way they're not in favor of democracy in the workplace. And I think that allowing democracy in the workplace is like you said very good for the um employees because it would probably increase like workplace productivity and satisfaction when the employees feel like they have power to have like their needs met by their employer and feel like they can 
if something's not right, they can speak up about it and have something be done. And they're not just going in feeling like they they have like no power to have any impact and they just go in. They don't, they just do their job to get it done and they don't feel really invested. Um, like they're really part of it. Like they have any power. That's an excellent point. Sophia, uh, would you like to say anything? Um, I don't know. I think that I agree with some parts of it, like striking place can no longer be permanently replaced of the PRO Act. But I'm like, I don't know about like the end of state right to work laws, because like in right to work states, employees have the choice to pay union dues. So I'm not I don't see how that would help or like benefit workers if you end those um, state right to work laws. Well, I think a very key thing there is you pay union dues because you get union benefits because it's the free rider problem is people from an economic perspective will do their best to take advantage of uh, to get benefits from things and not pay back what is actually necessary to maintain those benefits. It's the tragedy of the commons, as it were. And in this case, what's happening is workers are more than happy to take the benefits of the union. They're more than happy to take the better health care, the better wages, the better whatever working hours that the union gives them, but they aren't willing to pay for all the money and the expense the union lays out on them in order to get those benefits for them. And I think it's perfectly reasonable that if you benefit from the union, you ought to be made to pay for the union. But that does raise an interesting question, which is that Harry Huang proposes a hypothetical in which the union succeeds. But can you prove that unions will be effective? Because I think Sophia poses an interesting hypothetical situation for proponents of the PRO Act. Namely, what happens if you get rid of right-to-work laws and all of a sudden everyone's paying union dues, but because of various factors? I mean, the aforementioned loss of, of the backbone of union culture in the well and the good-paying blue-collar jobs and uh, the increasing amount of gig economy. You know, how can you guarantee that the unions are going to be effective enough to be worth the dues that everyone now has to pay for them? I guess I could, I could take my own question. Um, so I would say that it is a well-taken point, but that I think it, uh, it is very much one that should be viewed in the context of what the rest of the PRO Act will do. Because the PRO Act empowers other parts, other unions overall, I do believe unions would be effective enough to actually meet the needs of workers to the point where they would be worth paying dues to. Um, because a lot of the, so the main measures em employers use against unions, such as infiltrating their meetings, holding mandatory meetings with their employees about, you know, like, are essentially spiels about how you shouldn't unionize um, and all that, as well as just generally speaking, the ability especially to get to independent arbitration, which is a really big deal because oftentimes what management can do with a new union is just say, we're not even going to negotiate. And the new unions, too, it can't stick around forever and eventually it just collapses. So I would say that if the PRO Act was getting rid of right to work laws, just, you know, poof, uh, it would be a bit of a problem. Um, so with that in mind, you know, I would say that you are certainly right, but that with the rest of the PRO Act, unions would actually be effective enough. Um, okay, wait, so like going back to the right of work laws. So just to clarify, um, do they have to pay the fees even if they're not part of the union? Because if they have to pay the fees, even if they're not part of it, that doesn't really make much sense. You pay the fees if you benefit from the union's collective bargaining agreement, which 
uh, the union typically negotiates collective bargaining agreements for all workers, not just union members. So if you benefit from the agreement the union makes for uh, that helps you, then you have to pay, even if you aren't formally part of the union. Um, wait, isn't the right to work law, it basically gives like workers the right to decide whether or not they want to join a union? Well, there's two parts to it. One part of it is unions can make, if without right to work laws, unions can make closed jobs where the employer has to hire people who are part of the union. And there's also the part about paying dues. Um, to add on to what Sophia was saying, this is probably a question for the other, for, I don't, I don't know, Harry, not Harry G, the other Harry. Um, so about the right to work laws, I'm kind of with Sophia on why would you pay um, for the union. I know you'd be paying for union benefits, which is definitely like a fair, like a fair trade. But how does that work? If you're not joining the union, how would the union let you benefit from like from their work? You know, like how does that work? Do you do they go around and ask every place do you want to join? Like join with our benefits, but not actually join the union? Like why would they let someone isn't really um, like fully committed to the union cause, why would they let someone just take the benefits? Even just because they're paying, wouldn't they want people to kind of like join them? Well, it's not a zero-sum game. The employer is paying. The union makes an agreement with the employer that all the workers at the company will get this and this and that and that. So it's it's not hurting the union anything. The union has to has costs in running itself and negotiating with the employer, but the actual amount that's contained in the agreement doesn't affect the union because the union doesn't pay for it, the employer does, so the union just negotiates it for all workers. There is one thing that is really notable, which is that when the right to work laws, if they're rolled back hypothetically, it leads to a situation which a lot of people would say, well, if I'm already paying union dues, I might as well join the union. And that leads to increased unionization. And the reason that's interesting is, of course, because unions don't just negotiate, they sometimes take more drastic measures including striking. So you could see uh, a clear increase in sort of dramatic responses from unions because, in other words, I think it's not unreasonable to say that hypothetically in a situation in which unionization rises because more people are paying union dues, so more people say, well, I'm already paying for it, may as well join it, that emboldens unions, makes them feel stronger, and they might strike more often. And that does raise the question, with the problems that can be associated with a strike, is it a good thing to embolden unions that much? Seeing a natural break in the flow of the discussion on the PRO Act, uh, would you like to start pivoting to the minimum wage, Katie? Okay, can I start? Go right ahead. Okay, so kind of to come back to a point we were talking about earlier with the PRO Act potentially giving unions um, an amount of power that might be a little bit um, a little bit unbalanced with businesses, um, might it be better to just kind of pick and choose which kind of benefits you want to give to workers, like an increased minimum wage? Um, that's just kind of set. It's not negotiable, just kind of like a $15 minimum wage. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I feel like a $15 minimum wage is a bit too drastic because that's almost double the current one, which is $7.25 because it would like this affect different states. Like um, states that have a, a lower cost of living, yeah, sorry, it was lower, um, have 
they have a lower state minimum wage. Like for example, I believe Alabama has no state minimum wage, so they just stick with the $7.25. So that would negatively affect them as compared to states that already have a higher state minimum wage, such as Washington, which is about $13. All right, well, uh, I suppose I can take the affirmative then on, uh, I guess I would take the affirmative on the minimum wage. And I would say that it is certainly true that the minimum wage is a kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a powerful tool, right? There's no doubt that the government is saying, this is how much you're paying everyone, right? And it can have negative impacts. However, there is something to be said for the massive benefits that are associated with a minimum wage hike. Most importantly, simply put, people could afford to live their lives, uh, which is something that I think a lot of times is underappreciated just, you know, just how bad it is to live, uh, to try and live with a $7.25 minimum wage. Um, it's not a living wage. You can't function in today's society uh, with that. I mean, what is it? The average American spends, what, 33% of their income on healthcare, uh, And that is the average. So that's well above minimum wage. Uh, or I think it's the median, rather. But the point being that especially even if you're sort of middle class or middle class ish, you spend a lot of money on things like healthcare, housing already. And so if you are lower income, especially you will be pouring a ton of money into, you know, rent, into paying for food until your insurance, if you get insurance, which it's not guaranteed that you do, you may not have the money. You're not allowed to enjoy certain things. You just don't have the money to, you know, consume products you might want to, or just, or to most importantly, have the security in case something goes wrong. What is the, there's that insane statistic, like, is it 60% of Americans don't have $500 in case of an emergency, you know, like, it, or no, it's not even 500, isn't it like a 150 or a $50? The point being that with our current minimum wage, we, uh, people are living on the margins. And so the $15 minimum wage, even if it might have some negative impacts in say Alabama, would also ensure that for so many more Americans, they could afford to have a bad moment. You know, they could afford to have a rainy day fund that they could reach into if something went wrong, which is a critical part of how people can stay, you know, housed, how people can stay, you know, just safe in general. Uh, and so I think it's really important that we see the uh, average living quality rise and also to sec uh, increase security for the average American. I agree with both. Like, I know, Sophia, what you're saying is that there's a very wide range of minimum wages right now from like $7.50 to like almost $14. And so $15 might not be um, a, a, like um, as big of a deal in Washington because it'd be like only a little more than a dollar. Um, and places like Alabama, it would be so much of an increase for businesses to have to pay their employees. But across America, just across the United States, kind of back to Harry's point, it really takes about a $15 minimum wage. $31,200 for an adequate standard of living for a single adult without children. So basically $15 is the minimum that you should really be paying anyone in the United States so that they can be able to have just necessities. And so maybe people in Alabama, um, just as that example, would have to increase their wages a lot, almost by like twice as much, but maybe they're just underpaying employees right now. Um, yeah, but if you're talking about such a drastic increase, 
federal minimum wage to $15, that would be detrimental to employees because businesses will have an increased need for layoffs, you know, they don't want to pay as much money. So they're going to lay off employees, um, which would, you know, lead to more unemployment. So I don't really see how that could help as many people as it would harm some people. And especially like it would like more negatively affect small business owners. Harry, you've been awfully quiet. Would you like to take this one? Whichever side you may be. Sure, I'll go ahead. Yes, minimum wage increases do typically result in increases in unemployment to some degree. However, at this point in time, I'm not particularly concerned with it. Obviously, coronavirus has caused a massive increase in the unemployment rate, but economic indicators indicate that we'll probably have a relatively swift recovery once coronavirus is over are lifted. And before coronavirus, we had a pretty low unemployment rate, so I'm not too concerned about slight tick up. The main point is, is the basic philosophy is any hours a day at a job should be able to earn enough to lead, to lead a de decent life. They shouldn't have to work a second job. They shouldn't have to do anything more other than show up for eight hours of work a day, get their paycheck, and then live a decent life. A $15 minimum wage means that people have that, have a living wage. Right now, what we have is a situation in which untold amounts of Americans jobs have to do odd jobs, have to scrape up money here and there and only get by paycheck to paycheck and even then live lives barely on the edge. I don't think that's something that should be happening in the United States. There ought to be a guarantee to all American workers that if you work an eight hour day, you can live a decent life. The $15 minimum wage does that. Um, okay. Oh, sorry. No, Sophia, you can go. Okay. Um, so yeah, but businesses, you know, they're not going to want to, um, like pay their employees by that much more, you know, especially in more rural states to have a lower state minimum wage. And what you're describing kind of sounds more like an argument for like universal basic income, you know, going back to what Harry G said earlier, you know, uh, people should always have, you know, like five. $150 on hand for emergencies or stuff like that, which kind of sounds more like an argument for universal basic income, not um, a federal minimum wage increase to $15. Well, you see, the issue with universal basic income is as it's given to everyone, it has an inflationary spiral on, spiral on effect that destroys any increase in purchasing power. With the minimum wage, though, the issue, there is some inflation that's associated with the rise of the minimum wage. However, most workers aren't taking minimum wage. So what it means is because we don't need to help the workers that are this, the workers that work eight hours a day and already can live decent lives, that's not who the minimum wage is for. They're fine in this circumstance. What we need to help is those workers who are being paid at minimum wage or in some cases illegally pay, being paid less. By raising the minimum wage, what we do for them is we extend this guarantee to them. Okay, um, yeah, but, okay, like, how would this help, for example, like, wouldn't this make the job market, like, more competitive, you know, if employees have to pay their workers by that much more, they'll probably hire less people, and, you know, that would lead to more unemployed people, and, you know, they can't have a good standard of living if they're unemployed, if they don't have, they're not making any income. Um, I well, have obviously a couple, some sort of oh, okay. Off, but I 
obviously there has to be some sort of trade-off because yes, I, I admit from an economic perspective, raising the minimum wage does tend to increase the unemployment rate. However, at this point, as I mentioned earlier, the unemployment rate is before the coronavirus was, is, was extremely, extremely low. So at this point, I feel very confident saying that's worth it to increase the unemployment rate a little bit if it means that millions of American workers can get can earn a living wage. Yeah, I agree with Harry, because if you think about paying people right now less money than they need to live adequately, and you lay off a small percentage of people just to make sure that the people who are still employed get to actually live, like rather than paying more people, not enough, you should pay slightly less people enough to live. And also, like back to also something Harry was saying is that some people work multiple jobs. And so if the... um. If the minimum wage were to increase to $15 instead of maybe in Alabama instead of 13 or 7 and you're making twice as much, you wouldn't need to work two jobs. And that means that a job opens up for someone else. So someone loses a job, a job opens up for people who no longer have to work like two or three jobs. So it kind of might work itself out a little bit. I would also like okay. to tell you. I would also like to tell you. No, 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 go ahead. Okay, um, well, I mean, such a high hike in the federal minimum wage, that would kind of lead to, that would, seems like that would lead to more layoffs than you've described, and that would, that, sorry, therefore, that means more people will be, like, put in suffering, you know, a lot of more people are unemployed, and I feel like, you know, the benefits don't really outweigh the disadvantages here, um, since it's probably going to be around the same number of people that are affected, and that doesn't really help more people than it harms people. Depending on the business, like if it's a larger business, a lot of them can afford to not lay off people to increase their minimum wage that they're paying their workers. They would just like simply increase the amount that they sell their products for. And so then no one would be laid off and they would just make more money to like make up for paying their workers more by increasing the cost of, or the like, increasing the price of their products. Um, yeah, like wouldn't that increase in goods and services lead to inflation though? So there is one thing. Of course, that, the minimum wage has an inflationary effect, but inflation is a thing that non-economists, non, non typically conservatives, like overblow a lot. It's hyperinflation is so bad. But the United States is nowhere near that. In fact, our inflation rate, I think, is actually very, very low right now below historical averages so actually it might actually be useful to boost that up a little bit if i might add on to that um sort of just to give a bit of context uh the the fed or the federal reserve has a dual mandate to sort of manage inflation but also employment and the fed generally targets about two to three percent inflation and that's what most economists agree is generally obviously for more extreme economies it can vary but for the u.s and most developed economies like it two to three percent inflation annually is pretty reasonable we have long even before coronavirus um the Fed was criticized, actually, before the uh, coronavirus for delaying the response, according to some people, because they were so aggressively, uh, they raised interest rates to control inflation long before, you know, the U.S. even reached its target. So to be clear, uh, there would be an, an inflationary effect, but we are not in a position where an inflationary effect is anything but, you know, uh, a minor, a tick over on a sort of on a on a graph, but not really a substantive change. But I would also like to say that there is another benefit of the minimum wage, which is that when you have more money, you buy more things. So what that means is that, you know, yes, companies might have to pay more, 
but at least some of that cost will be paid back to them in the fact that there will be a new sort of breed of consumers. And we know that lower income people will spend more because according to the simple rule of marginal gains, the, the less you have, if you're given the same amount of money, you'll spend it more. So with these people living on the margins, they'll be for the first time able to get these basic needs or maybe even get some hobbies, et cetera, et cetera. And they will spend that money and that money will then go to companies. So while certainly it's true that costs will rise, profits will also rise. Um, yeah, you all have very valid points and I understand like what you're all saying, but I just feel like um, increasing to $15 would be too drastic. I would support like a gradual increase in minimum wage or like, um, a lower like uh yeah a gradual increase or like you know a lower increase to something less drastic like maybe ten dollars so sophia are you suggesting that like the minimum wage um the new minimum wage would be based on what the state already has as their minimum wage so that like a place with 750 would increase um wouldn't increase to 15 dollars it would increase to something less drastic than um the united states going to like from like 14 to 15? Um, yeah, like just a lower increase in the minimum wage or like a gradual one, like, you know, increase a little bit every year until it reaches a target so that the effects aren't as drastic. Or maybe another alternative could be targeting efforts towards providing more jobs for the unemployed rather than, you know, raising the minimum wage because that would help more people than raising the, sorry, the minimum wage, I feel like. Yeah, so I feel like it would make more sense if states could maybe determine their minimum wage, like maybe all of the states are required to raise their state minimum wage by a little amount or like um, a set amount. Like, for example, every state raises their state minimum wage by like, I don't know, like $2 so that therefore it's more suitable for that specific state's cost of livings and it doesn't have such a drastic effect on like employees. So, I think we've proposed a lot about what the minimum wage hike could look like. But let's bring it back to the original discussion. So, just going around the sort of round table, what do you think would be more effective for improving the lives of the average American worker? Would it be the PRO Act or would it be a $15 minimum wage hike? Or to state it simply, let's imagine for a moment you had the power to convince the entire Senate to vote for one bill, and it could either be the $15 minimum wage or it could be the PRO Act. Which one are you going to choose? I would probably choose the $15 minimum wage only because that's a guarantee, whereas the PRO Act just guarantees that unions can negotiate. It doesn't necessarily, um, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that they're going to get extremely far, like what we were talking about, how effective are they going to be? But a $15 minimum wage is just kind of like, a guaranteed amount and that's it. and it's based on like it's based on the amount that people need to live adequately so I think that would be probably fair and like definitely something that would happen and it's not just like it's not just like maybe the unions will be effective maybe they won't okay so we're taking so if I'm understanding you correctly you're essentially saying you know regardless of what the ceiling for what it could do is the $50 minimum wage is guaranteed I want the higher floor that certainly makes sense Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, how about you, Harry Huang? I would take the Pro Act in a heartbeat. 
inflation will at some point eventually destroy the $15 minimum wage as it once destroyed, as it has now destroyed the 17, $7.25 minimum wage. But at least the union, the PRO Act affects a structural change for unions. Perhaps it's a bit, um, bit, bit too much praise, but I would say perhaps it will be as important as FDR's National Labor Relations Act. Because I think it will permanently strengthen unions, and hopefully, um, yeah, hopefully it will lead to a strengthened hand for unions in negotiation, and hopefully one day, uh, the syndicalist revolution. All right, certainly, um, a bit more of a ceiling of you know I want I want the permanent change, and also perhaps a little bit of a little bit of dreaming about a revolution. Um, how about you, Sophia? Um, I would say probably the pro act. Like I don't fully agree with us um, part of each dollars wage would be too drastic and you know has negative effect and it would lead to unemployment and yeah i feel like allowing unions to negotiate makes more sense than setting the minimum wage because there's a lot of i mean the 15 dollars minimum wage i mean i definitely would support a gradual increase or like a less drastic increase but yeah i feel like the minimum wage has a lot of has a lot of negative economic consequences. All right, that's certainly that's certainly true that the that the minimum wage can be a bit drastic, and that you the, the pro act would be a little bit more flexible. So then I suppose to give my two cents, I would have to say that perhaps it's just my sympathy with unions historically. But I would take the PRO Act, and the main reason I would, I think Harry Paul made some excellent points. However, I do recognize the fact that Katie did bring up the elephant in the room for us, you know, sort of I prefer the PRO Act kind of group, which is that, yeah, it's not the kind of concrete benefits that the $15 minimum wage is. So, for example, if I were a politician and I was saying, I need to get elected, you know, next cycle, I'd get the $15 minimum wage because it would be immediate and effective. However, assuming I only get one bill passed, I would say that the sweeping protections for the unions are important, if only because I think, you know, as Harry said, the minimum wage will slowly be eroded by inflation. But also, I think that unions can can cultivate a stronger unions are sort of uh, you can imagine it's like a garden, right? We the PRO Act is essentially fertilizing unions, maybe keeping, you know, pests away, right? It is allowing it to grow. The $15 minimum wage is like a, you know, very pretty uh, lawn decoration. It's not going to change. It's $15. And as the weather kind of gets at it, it will slowly look worse and worse. But if you plant, you know, the seeds and you fertilize them with the PRO Act, unions and what they can advocate for, including higher minimum wages in their industries, which can then set industry standards and industries can pressure each other as they, as you know, companies compete for new workers, those unions can essentially grow a better world. Um. So that would be my case for it. All right. Well, thank you to Sophia and Katie for coming on. Uh, this is this. Well, that will do it for this episode of Swing Vote. Thank you for listening. Uh, I hope you've came to uh, you've come to your own conclusions, and stay safe. And thank you for listening. <laughs>